We didn't really introduce ourselves, should we? Y'all could. They know who I am. They know me. Welcome to the Hashing It Out podcast, where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. Your hosts are Dr. Corey Petty, currently doing research at Status and waiting for other people to keep up. I'll drink. I'll drink to that. Jesse Santiago, a former electrical engineer now working on decentralized storage at Status. Do you know a guy who's named Demi? Or is that a girl's name? And with the deep voice and the deep questions, Dee Ferguson. Lamar, you gotta roll it. And I'm the Hashing It Out showrunner, Christian Noguera. She can do whatever the fuck she wants. That's what she's doing. The Hashing It Out blockchain infrastructure series continues with episode two on the application layer with Patrick O'Grady. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Um, before you introduce yourself, I'll give you a bit of a context on what we've been talking about. This series is mostly around all the technology that goes into building blockchain networks and the trade-offs that we make when choosing this technology uh, in terms of like computational resources, scalability, user experience, et cetera. And that started from infrastructure, like what devices we're using and the like commodity hardware we try to, we try to optimize for, but we ended up not, not doing that and kind of the different dimensions of scale with respect to that, that you go to and to networking. So how these computers connect to each other and peer to peer networks and the trade-offs there, we moved to consensus. And so like, once you have a network of computers, how do they agree on stuff and talked about kind of the different types of consensus with Vitalik. Um, and then once you have consensus, you move on to data. So like you're usually just agreeing on data and what data means at the blockchain network level. What's the purpose of that data? And now, uh, finally, once we have that, once we've agreed on something, what do we do with that data, which is kind of the execution environment slash application layer. And we thought having you on would be a good uh, person to kind of bring in to kind of the, the models we're using to think about building applications on blockchain networks. So with that, why don't you give the audience a little bit of an introduction as to who you are and what you work on? Sure. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. I love, love talking about uh, these topics in particular. You know, I, uh, I always uh, feel so lucky to have the job I have. It feels more like a hobby than a job, which I think everyone always says is the goal. So at least from that perspective, you know, regardless of whatever is going on in the market, I think these, these kind of topics are always, always the most fun to, to, to discuss. Um, so yeah, my, my background, um, I actually grew up uh, in Wisconsin, far, far away from all sorts of blockchain related stuff. Uh, I got, I got into it uh, when I came out to California to go to, to go to school. Um, and uh, for me, it was really uh, love at first sight. Like I started to play around with it. I really liked uh, to code at that time. And if you're into distributed computing, uh, there's no more challenging and interesting environment in which to play around with that. You know, you have adversarial hosts, like all sorts of interesting network topologies and conditions, and then uh, the, uh, you know, parameter range for playing around with different trade-offs, as you mentioned in the beginning, is, is massive. You could you could spend your entire multiple lifetimes playing around with different ways you could, to set up different networks and, you know, everything around that. Um, and so uh, at that time, I, I think the options uh, to go into careers were uh, it was really AI, rockets, cars, or blockchain. And uh, I tried AI. I wasn't super great at it, uh, but I was a lot. Uh, I was pretty good at blockchain. And uh, 
uh, just kept on really going going through there. So um, after school, I, I worked at Coinbase uh, for a few years, two years. Uh, while I was there, I actually spent most of my time uh, on uh, the process of actually how do you scalably and safely add uh, blockchains to Coinbase? Uh, and, you know, I think the verdict on Coinbase, you know, you, you could cut it all the ways you want to, but for a lot of people, it's their first uh, step into, into blockchain. And for a lot of networks, it's a huge way for them to start to uh, allow people to interact with what they do, you know, coming out from anywhere. Like, you know, I think everyone talks about money into Coinbase, like crypto out, like to start playing around with and everything. And so for me, it was an awesome experience to, understand how to manage these networks at scale, like how do you interact with them safely, uh, as well as to talk to a lot of the protocol teams that were actually building uh, at that time. Um, and so through that process, I created a uh, open source specification there uh, for reading and writing to blockchains called Rosetta. Uh, they use Rosetta now for adding uh, all assets to Coinbase. Um, and the whole point is like, if uh, Coinbase can try to standardize the process of adding assets, we can all spend less time basically trying to figure out that, how to speak the same language. Um, after that, uh, in January 2021, um, I actually uh, got a, a Twitter DM from Kevin, uh, one of the co-founders at Avalabs. Have you heard of Avalanche? And actually at that time at Coinbase, there were a bunch of people uh, that I looked up to that actually had heard of Avalanche, knew uh, Professor Sir, you know, we call him uh, Evan Goon Sir, um, and uh, spoke highly about what Avalanche was doing, how interested they were and how great their technical team was. And so, I was already interested in the consensus that they were pursuing, but, you know, really having the validation of people I trusted uh, with the talent that they had there, uh, you know, I decided to go in. So, um, yeah, and I've been at Avalabs for the past uh, about a year and, oh, wow, it's almost uh, 11 months now, which is kind of crazy. I've been saying a year and nine months, what feels like for like three months. So I think I got to update my, my phrase here, but, uh, and I'm the head of engineering there. So, yeah, that was my brief uh, intro. Nice. Cool. So, Go ahead, Jesse. Um, so I guess let's talk a little bit about um, EVMs uh, or you know the constructing a VM in general. Um, how how does one do that? Yeah, I think uh, the fun part is that I think if you asked a uh, hundred people, especially in blockchain, they'd all give you a different answer. Um, and so that I think really underlines our approach at Avalabs to what we're trying to do is providing all these primitives so that you can try all 100 of those uh, different ideas. But the way we think about it at a high level um, is kind of uh, the plugins to Avalanche consensus, which is, is how we kind of structure the VM's uh, state diagram, maybe is the way to put it. Um, so the Avalanche consensus engine will prompt um, what we'll call, in this case, we'll call virtual machine just like a black box first to kind of talk about maybe the hooks you could consider. And then we'll flip it and say like what you kind of want to do on the other side, right? So in blockchain, uh, typically a virtual machine is the process where it goes from uh, identifying uh, raw bytes. Uh, so like, you know, the network says, hey, here are these bytes. We say they're a block. Hopefully the virtual machine knows how to identify what a block is or like some sort of data blob that's uh, canonical to its understanding. So it parses it, pulls out what may be transactions or whatever the, you know, whatever you may choose to put in that thing. Um, and then from there, there's like a step of verification. So, you know, you take the data blob, the block, the transactions, and then you say, okay, are these transactions valid uh, based on some sort of parent state? So, you know, we've parsed the block, we've verified the block. And then after that, um, 
you know, there's this part where in, at least in uh, virtual machines with uh, deterministic finality, there's like an accept and then a reject. And so usually in the accept phase, you would then write all of the different information that you verified or parsed um, to disk so that you can actually keep it and then continue building on it if the node shuts down or the virtual machine shuts down. And then if you reject it, you just get rid of it. <laughs> so uh, in a virtual machine, the biggest trick though, is that everything you do is deterministic. And that is almost always the cause of bugs uh, in production on different virtual machines is that there's some sort of thing that someone forgot Oh yeah, you know, for example, in Golang, um, which is a common language for a lot of these virtual machine designers, if you iterate uh, over a map, it is a non-deterministic order. So if two nodes iterate over what they believe to be the same map, they will get out a different result. And what you have there is then it could result in a, a different state hash or something like that being at the end. So the chain would fork because it would no longer agree on state. Um, but to back up a bit, um, you know, when you come to virtual machines, really the goal is, can we have some data that we're distributing through the network per all perform the same operation of it to do something that we all agree is important and then, you know, potentially get rewarded for it or, you know, do some sort of computation that we find interesting. In the case of the EVM, it's executing uh, solidity. Uh, in the case of, you know, other virtual machines or blockchains, it may be some other network or some other language or virtual machine. Um, but in the case of, uh, you know, some of the newer ones, it may be even more uh, kind of meta things like, uh, you know, you're almost like executing blocks for other virtual machines and things that are working on data availability. And some of the cooler stuff with zero knowledge, you're like verifying proofs. Um, you know, the whole point is the virtual machine is, is your language for how you instruct this network to operate and, and make progress at the, at the highest level. So you have this idea of like the consensus engine is coming to agreement on pieces of data, blobs of data, ostensibly because it knows, and then it, it does that by hopefully validating because it knows what this data is supposed to, how this data is supposed to be constructed. Once you come to agreement on that, the machine basically does stuff with it, right? It takes one state and transforms it to a new state um, in a, you know, like you said, deterministic way. And then people use that to build applications on top. What are the, like, be, there's a, starting from the beginning, like I said, this whole series, there's a whole bunch of complexity here leading to the point of, I'm very confident that this massive machine did this correctly. And I wanna build a build an application on top of it that does something. Like, what are the trade-offs of me doing it on, uh, blockchain virtual machine versus building something like without all of that complication like what am i what am i gaining sure. here why do i why do well, i go through obviously, this obviously it's easier to do the blockchain approach right no. uh <laughs> so i think uh um you know what sort of trade-offs you're making first of all uh let me i i may just go on a few points here i'm not sure that these have any particular order of priority just for people listening um so when you think about blockchains and the trade-offs there, usually the one of the important pieces is that other people in the network validate the same stuff as you and come to agreement uh, on the end result of the computation, whether or not uh, they're validated or not. So some for someone, uh, you know, someone, a basic example of this is in Bitcoin, right? Like um, there are no validators, there's binders. And a common, a common question I got at Coinbase was like, well, like what if someone like hacked, you know, the Bitcoin node and then had us 
you know, disagree on this, like how different things were, uh, or like someone hacked other nodes and they disagreed on how to actually execute transactions. What would happen? Like what if the miners, you know, just sent us garbage that like illegal spends or whatever. And, you know, the response is, well, you know, our node runs the actual canonical rules of the network. If we were to receive an invalid block, even if the, you know, the puzzle was correct or, you know, uh, we would just reject it and drop it. And the important part in blockchain for a lot of people writing it is that every single person, if they so choose, could validate the authenticity and the actual state transitions uh, in a block. So when it comes down to trade-offs, that then means you now need to make uh, some sort of, you have to target some level of average user and then make sure that that average user in terms of like the complexity or performance of their hardware can keep up with the chain uh, that you're actually producing. Now, there are two approaches to this. One is, okay, I'm going to now have everyone in the network running supercomputers so that we can all be super scalable, or they can distribute uh, only parts of the network to parts of different people and then have them do it, which we'd call sharding or something like that. Um, whether it's homogeneous, meaning that it's like kind of built into the network or heterogeneous and explicit, maybe like a Cosmos or an Avalanche subnets or Polkadot kind of where it's it's very specifically regimented. Um, so the trade-off in many cases as a virtual machine designer and an application builder is how many people do you actually want to run this thing? Because <laughs> if you want a lot of people to run it, either it must have a lot of great rewards and a great use, or it must be really cheap to run. And then from there, there's a whole nother birth of like, okay, if you want uh, to run it uh, very efficiently and you want everyone to run it, well, do you want to run something so simple that even like a phone could run it? Or is there like a minimum level of target complexity you're targeting with your virtual machine? Um, and then from there, there's like, you can optimize your virtual machine maybe to only do specific state transitions. Like, so most people understand the EVM is like the blockchain that everyone kind of references. I think even beginners now to uh, reference that instead of something like Bitcoin. Um, and uh, it's because of the solidity, like they can just deploy a contract and then not worry about it whatsoever. Well, to support that sort of generality, you have to actually run and execute an entire virtual machine underneath the hood on every single node in the network. Well, what if instead it was uh, maybe something like an optimized chain or people call an app chain where you have a very specific purpose to it and a very limited set of operations uh, can be much more efficient to operate, but then you lose some of the expression. Uh, you lose some of the uh, kind of uh, scope of it in the same way. Uh, a lot of networks nowadays uh, find composability to be a very important and interesting thing. So, you know, if I deploy a smart contract and then someone else does, it should be really important that I can then access and interact with that smart smart contract no matter what. Well, to do that, you have to have a lot more uh, stuff going on in the virtual machine. It typically can be less efficient. You may have to fetch things from state to prepare for different accesses and whatever. Um, so if you limit, for example, the ability for things to interact with, you can totally change the profile of your operation. So it's really, in my mind, two dimensions. One is how many people do you want to run it? And what do you want like the minimum spec to be to run it? And that's like kind of one of your accesses. And then the other one is given that you have some sort of resource constraint, what do you actually want that thing to be doing? Like, do you want to spend, uh, do you want to have more overhead to support more generality? Or do you want to more specifically optimize it for a specific operation and then maybe achieve a higher throughput because there's less overhead or something like that. The holy grail being, 
oh, we can do both, right? Like we can have uh, very little overhead and support maximal expression. And that's what usually virtual machine designers are trying to optimize for at some layer. So that's usually my 2D matrix, at least for thinking about trade-offs and in, within virtual machine design. There's many more that you can go there with, but as a, you know, a network designer, I think that's usually where people start. Yeah, one of the uh, outcomes of the data interviews, which I thought was actually um, quite interesting, uh, was the, the trend of the purpose of data and blockchains. And it started out as like, everyone has all information. We have 100% redundancy across the entire network because that's what's, that's what's required to have the level of verification you need based on how proof of work works and how things are currently happening now in Ethereum and elsewhere is where we've come to the conclusion that that's not viable with the amount of expression we'd like to have in these things. Um, and we're moving past commodity hardware in order for everyone to be able to do this. And it's maybe not necessary, especially based on proof of stake. So, and, 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 and Avalanche certainly goes this route too, right? You have a generalized consensus layer that allows people to make subnets, which are basically uh, more specific groups of people focusing on different different virtual machines or whatever they want to do, right? And the purpose of data in the blockchain has just become, this. you need this, at least at the consensus layer, in order to verify that things were done correctly. Once things, once you've passed that window, whatever that window may be for the application, you can throw it away or delegate it somewhere else, whether it be archival or a layer two or whatever, right? So when thinking about that from an application standpoint, like how do you make decisions there? Like how do you, how do you, how does Avalanche think about, like, tell people about, or, or or maybe help guide people in the process of building the appropriate thing for the application they want to end up building? I think it's a it's a great question. I think one that's you know still openly researched really on like what the best trade off is there. I think for a lot of people, uh, because there's so many trade offs, they may not realize every little decision like this has a cost, right? Like if every node in the network was to just have every piece of data because that's you know important in principle to some sort of virtual machine designer, you know that means more disks. That means everyone has to have more disks. That may be based on how you store that information. That like your state access may be slower if you're using something like LevelDB, which you know gets slower the more data you put in, especially bigger chunks of it because of compaction or something like that. Um, and so when it comes down to this one, uh, we think we strike a pretty healthy balance between allowing people to do things uh, based on their own trade-offs, like most subnet users, for example, are targeting some sort of high throughput application where there may be a lot more data than there is on the primary network, um, but still allow people to participate if they see fit, uh, which is the whole opt-in nature of subnets rather than uh, kind of the forced nature of it uh, or uh, you know some sort of you know, rotational force thing. Um, now, when it comes down to it, like we think that, uh, uh, you know, most people say that it's important that blockchains have the most individual uh, decentralized participants re-executing everything. And most importantly, also maintaining that state so that new people can join the network and revalidate for themselves. Now, the trade-off there is usually if you uh, target higher throughput, um, let's say you, let's, we'll talk about it in terms of like network bytes, even though that there are many other dimensions, like how many instructions or, you know, whatever. Um, let's just talk about pure network bandwidth. If the network just block data, like enough to actually execute the transactions is let's say 50 megabytes per second. Well, if you want to 
catch up to the network and you're resyncing blocks, even at a rate of two to one, you need to now have a hundred megabyte per second ingress and the network must support to you sending a hundred megabytes per second on top of whatever the responsibility or overhead is of the 50 megabytes per second that's needed just to keep the network going. Right now, let's say that you're targeting a, you know, a gigabit per second. Well, then you, to catch up, usually you want to be maybe 10 blocks synced per one block produced by the network. You need to have some pretty crazy hardware to support different sort of things. Now, that assumes, again, that you want to synchronize the whole network from scratch. If you have a, a million blocks, like syncing that much data, storing it across the network uh, can be quite expensive. And so a lot of people nowadays, as you, you're probably very well aware, do some sort of state sync approach where instead of actually storing all the blocks since Genesis and re-executing them like you would in Bitcoin, uh, because there are many fewer blocks, they're very well distributed. A lot of these higher throughput chains say, you know, forget it. If you just execute all the blocks, you're never going to catch up or it's going to take a few months. Instead, we'll just send you the current state. So you invite this whole new problem of, well, you have to start off, you have to know what the current state is. <laughs> and so you have to ask somebody like, hey, like, what should I even start syncing to? Because, you know, it's always changing. You can't like hard code it anywhere. And so then you end up having this whole new problem of, well, if I'm not going to execute everything up to the tip, I somehow have to know that like the state that I'm getting or that I start fetching is actually authentic. And then once I actually get to that point to be able to start uh, or continue processing blocks in the network. Now, you know, okay, cool. You solved that problem. Well, think about even simple things, right? Like let's say your node is uh, served the wrong state route. You spend all this time fetching, you know, information to power the state route. And then when you start executing blocks, oh shit, you realized, uh, you know, it's not the right state route. Well, they just, you know, you arguably DOSed you to fetch all this data from the network uh, for absolutely no use to you whatsoever. Um, and so as you think about kind of designing the topology of like how you want to balance how data is made available, how data is actually synced through the network, um, usually the case is the less data there is, the more people can join. The more data there is, the longer it takes to join. Sometimes the more fragile the network is because recovery takes longer. Um, so, you know, usually we, the really the, one of the big things with subnets is that you can let people decide where they want to be on there. Like if you want a hundred megabits per second of traffic, okay, but just know that <laughs> what comes with that, right? If you want 500 kilobytes per second of traffic, well, you can do that. You'll probably have more participants and the data will probably be more uh, readily replicated throughout the network. So it's not inundating everyone with the decisions of a few. Yeah. So the idea is that if you decide, Corey, to run your network in a way that I don't think is responsible, let's say, I don't have to deal with that problem. You do, or whoever mm -hmm. decides to join the network. And we think that because there are so many different decisions to make that we just don't think it's a good place to be to be to tell you exactly how it's done because you may go somewhere else and find somewhere else. Instead, it's better to just give you the tools and then you can decide for this health of your own network or like the network that you're working on uh, what the right trade-off is for the participants uh, you know, who may join and secure it. Hmm. Seems yeah. like, um, like, um, at least recursive ZK proofs in order to compact, uh, data, like the blockchain data seems like a way forward, but you, you lose the retrievability aspect to reconstruct state. If you, you know, get fed, you know, invalid, uh, invalid blocks 
that reconstruct that state route in that it's not like basically the situation where you said that they DDoS you, you know, you consume your bandwidth and you basically are stuck. Um, yeah. Most people would thoughts? say that you can hopefully avoid that by like having uh, at least enough participants to be like somewhat honest. Um, and so a lot of networks, uh, I, in fact, I would think almost all networks have some notion of like bootstrapping peers to get mm -hmm. you started on a good path to begin with. Um, and those bootstrapping peers may be maintained by the foundation or some number of trusted peers that's actually hard coded into the software itself to make sure you get a good place to start. But you would think as networks continue to grow, like this notion should also evolve, right? Like the, the, and that's where um, discovery mechanisms are also a current, like the, the networking layer and discovery mechanisms and bootstrapping networks are still very much open problems that we're actively trying to figure out. Yeah. So usually it's some notion of like, all right, I got 10 URLs or 10 IP addresses or something like that. I pull all of them for some sort of data of how to start. And then once I have that data, like if eight of the 10 agree, then I'm off to the races, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's usually something as trivial or at least mildly close to that. Now, even with the proof of knowledge, um, you still need the raw data at, <laughs> that you're going to actually start with. Like the proof itself, 22 kilobytes in some blockchains are like, you know, even let's say a, a couple megabytes uh, will not give you enough to get going because actually perform future state transitions, you actually need the state that was previously there to perform it. And so we can talk about this later. I know someone uh, just joined, but uh, that the notion that you have these like stateless clients that when you actually interact with the blockchain, you bring the data with you you need is a totally different way of even thinking about this problem entirely. And the blockchain itself just holds a hash or like some sort of root. And then you could provably modify that root as long as there isn't some sort of way to cause a hash collision. And then in that way, you now remove the problem of state management from the validators and instead keep them just being a consensus and like really just a root distribution mechanism. And then you actually defer that challenge to the application developer or, you know, just the network as a, you know, imagine you have a wallet and it has to keep track of all the states. So it knows how to actually modify, you know, whatever the root is uh, for everything you do. You find that interesting because it's like, based on our conversation so far and everything we, we know about, blockchains and the stack involved for, for making them building an application on these things is not only incredibly hard, I would say significantly harder than building a traditional centralized application, but it's changing drastically, right? Like the, the way that the mental model of what I need to do and, and, and understand and take care of or delegate to the network itself changes every month, basically as an application developer, how do you keep up with that? Like, what do you, what yeah, do you I mean, see the future it, going? This was the, I would say the worst part of working at uh, Coinbase was this, like, you know, mm -hmm. you, you obviously want networks to evolve and adapt and grow and change dramatically as they learn more, the developers learn more, they like work out different theories they have about how to scale blockchains, but people very often forget the overhead associated with those changes where it's like, you know, you have exchanges, you have wallets, you have, you know, API providers, you have data sources, which is super important for like analytics, taxes, you know, whatever have you, that also all have to adapt. And as a virtual machine designer, if you just go willy nilly changing everything every six months, it's going to be very difficult to have a community built around side of you because just like you, you're probably a pretty small shop. You probably have limited resources and having everyone rewrite everything every six months is a great way to <laughs> scare people away from whatever you're doing. 
um, just because the people just can't keep up and make an actual business or project uh, on top of that. But I think in terms of like the evolution of these things, I, I hope it continues. I think that the big vision with Rosetta or what I started at Coinbase was we can abstract that away and then leave that to the developer of the network itself. So maybe the schema in which you access the lower level data doesn't change, but the block format may change, the transactions may change. And then there's an abstraction kind of or shim between the end user and the network itself that it makes this easier. Maybe doesn't make it go away, but certainly makes it more tractable. Yeah. D jumped in. He's our other co-host. What's up, Patrick? How you doing? How's it going? <laughs> We're good. Yeah. Uh, I have one question. Hit I me. hope you're ready for it. Yeah, I'm when am I, Don't worry. <laughs> when am I? Uh, when am I going to be able to run Doom on a blockchain? That's a good question. You could do that. Uh, I think honestly, with what people have today, you could do it today as long as depends how you do it. I think for that sure. The, the yeah. uh, um, I think the pro like the the fun part of it honestly is like the state transitions involved with that. Like you know, that's one aspect of it. But how you actually get served all the content to play Dune is, or at Doom, I should say, is still such a under-tackled problem in all of this that it, oh. it really uh, is one of the things that I've always thought people should focus more on and do better. And actually, I'll give a shout out. Um, the A16Z research team recently released this uh, like client for Ethereum called Helios. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. it was yeah, we've been doing it at Status for a while now. <laughs> yeah, they, they the same sort of thing. Uh, like mm -hmm. tweeted a while ago, it's uh, like this whole sort of full RPC like client thing that actually verifies that the data you get back is correct. We now actually game, uh, did a talk at that at DevCon. Nimbus has been doing this under the hood for quite a while, ever since the merge. Because uh, so we did a talk on kind of enabling ultra light clients now based on the changes proof of stake merge uh, have enabled. And the fact that that's not more widespread or not part of wallets and not part of browsers and not part of everything is such a, it just makes me so sad I think, <laughs> on the inside. Cause like people don't even think about the RPCs and uh, as like a real risk factor for a lot of the stuff people do. Like you have to realize that the data you get in your, your, your browser, your wallet is totally unauthenticated. You are trusting yeah. you know, whoever to serve it to you because they say they are who they said they were. That's kind of the it's, it's it's this weird thing that I'm seeing um, over the like development cycle of all these things is that they, like it, these decisions that we're having to make is at the application layer. So like the developers are are the ones that are having the real hard time trying to figure out how do I take all these different puzzle pieces and put them together and then serve something to an end user that makes them feel like they can have an intuitive fun experience that gets them that gets something done. And at the, so at the same time, we're still just trusting application developers a lot of the time to make those decisions appropriately. Like we all play chicken, right? But like, how do I know that they're making decisions appropriately when I'm interfacing on their on on, on the uh, on their web app? Like I can I can dive deep if I want to, but no one is. And so these types of changes, like the light client you just mentioned, give me additional ways to verify that the data that I'm getting from that web app is correct. And I don't have to trust them to do so. And it's going to take a while before we get to a point where all of it is verifiable on my end, but also not a fucking nightmare to use in the first place. Well, so, I mean, and the reason why I bring this up is because as a virtual machine designer, you can help make that decision easier or harder for the people that are actually 
integrating within your ecosystem. Like if you make, you know, certain decisions with how you actually structure the client or it's extremely heavy or extremely complex, you know, you may not be able to actually compile some form of like a light execution that you could run in a browser or run somewhere else uh, to actually authenticate RPC responses that come back to you from different providers if that is a goal of yours, right? There's overhead to doing that because, you know, it may really constrain your scope or, or like kind of package for how you could consider deploying things. But at the same time, you know, if, if this is an important thing to you, it may be worth that trade off entirely to try and make the data uh, or, you know, think about this as a first party problem at the beginning. So that maybe the core of your execution is just WASM. And then, you know, maybe the, your network has a runtime that just runs WASM blobs, but then you could drop in the exact same execution framework into the browser with no modification. You know, does that add complexity? Certainly it does, but it's clearly a design decision you could make early on that may make achieving certain goals better. But to your point about running the game, um, you know, I think it's easy to interact with, but with games and stuff like that, I think with such competition and, uh, you know, you're getting all these assets in game, um, you know, I really hope that people that start to like really push the narrative on these uh, games start to innovate the mm -hmm. stack alongside of it so that we're not all using, you know, the big clouds and Cloudflare, and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we're using centralized web infrastructure, but <laughs> like we're running a blockchain. Don't worry about it. You know, like we're, there's a blockchain yeah. somewhere in there. Some I hand would just love to see something. There's a lot of a lot of hand waving in crypto this these past couple of years. I guess I take that same question and flip it the other way around. Is there an application that you're currently on that you're currently working with or on that you're waiting for the technology to catch up to and believe that it can? I think, I mean, I'll, I'll give two answers to that one. I think one, the cliche answer, which is zero knowledge proofs, I think are so cool. And I think that the prover time right now, everyone's waiting for, right? Like someone's going to figure out a way to make this thing prove way faster. And then it's going to change everything about blockchain design for the most part. Like if you can just more scalably and deterministically and authenticate crazy, massive, you know, amounts of transactions much more cheaply and efficiently than actually even performing the thing yourself, it will change everything about how virtual machines are designed. And so I'm waiting uh, very patiently or maybe impatiently <laughs> for uh, all sorts of really cool research to come out around how we continue to improve the proving time. And I have to say, some of the smartest people I have ever met in crypto are working on this problem specifically. And mm -hmm. they like pull out a whiteboard, start talking about it. And then like three whiteboard pages, papers, <laughs> theorems and math and like, you know, all the stuff you have to do. I'm like, yeah, man, just tell me when it's ready. I'm, I'm ready yeah. when you are. So, uh, you know, that's the one I'm, I think I'm waiting uh, most for to, to actually really use it because, you know, we're, we're extremely excited about what zero knowledge will bring. And we think that we're extremely well positioned to provide virtual machines that uh, are wholly focused on just really interesting and easy verification of different proofs in a way that we don't think other, I guess our, our virtual machine framework, we feel is very well designed for this in particular. We just don't have the zero knowledge piece complete yet. Now there is some form of it and, you know, a, a number of people are starting to launch these things in production, uh, but everyone will still tell you like, you know, there's an embedded latency to it because the proof generation just takes so long. You can't have sub-second blocks because the proofs take a minute to actually put together, right? But you can do it really cheap because the proof may cover thousands of transactions. So like, you know, what's actually on chain and what you may be charged for is dramatically less and it doesn't actually burden the network. But uh, yeah, that's really the thing I'm, I'm really looking, uh, looking more to use. And then the other one is just... Um, 
actually more of a passion project of mine that I feel like I can actually more easily contribute to is uh, more people using the content addressable web. So like stuff that IPFS pioneered, you know, for the last few years, um, you know, if you search something, where are you going to get ratted on Google? Probably to some website, right? There are not a lot of great indexing tools built specifically for a web where everything is content addressable and maybe stored all over the place. You're used to having very clear definitions of the web and then stored in very specific places that you can then fully index and not worry about having to locate things, not worry about how to even deal with the UX challenges of only working with content addressable data instead of like JavaScript and super dynamic stuff. Um, but with the, the way that and the rate that data is growing in the world around us, like I think that there are a number of really cool tools uh, that could be built around just content addressable data that we can much more safely access and serve. Uh, and I think that that alone uh, is a huge place for blockchain to really step up or just fantastic designers that are probably much better at <laughs> thinking about how to make this more approachable for people. Cause if it was me, it would just be some sort of like cly or something like that, uh, which it may not work for everybody, but uh, generally I'm, I'm very excited to use it more if it was more accessible. Like let's say for an example, Hey, like show me all the memes on IPFS and I'll like rate them. You can't do that right now. No one does that. Like show me like, like, is there like a, you know, stumble upon kind of for uh, IPFS would be super cool, but no one really has anything like that. So I'm playing around with some ideas to try and put something like that together. But I think that the content addressable web will be huge once people uh, get further along on some of the UX around how to access it. As happenstance, I just DM'd you a project I ran into at DEF CON that you may find interesting. Yeah, cool. I'll check it out. You're not going to name the project? Oh, no, no, no. No free promotion around here. Get at it. Get your that's, that's that's all. I didn't I didn't really think about that being an issue until you just said it, Patrick. Because it's very very funny. One of the softwares I use at my day job, they just implemented that within the software, where we can look at a very specific type of content and it branches out into different types of transactions whether it's an inventory transaction or, or, or financial transaction, and it helps a lot. Like being able to zero in on a very specific type of thing that you're looking for. I mean, this is a, this is a problem that's larger than crypto in a real way. There's like the semantic web is something that Tim Berners-Lee has been passionate about trying to grow since kind of taking a hiatus from the internet for a long period of time. And I mean... It, it, it does come back to eventually it's like, well, what we have now actually almost always is easier and cheaper. So like, I think a lot of people in the space, like, well, don't fix what's already broken. So we're going to fix the thing that, you know, barely works or really slow or super expensive. And so the, you know, the squeaky wheel doesn't get any attention and the internet for most people, most of the time is totally fine. Like certainly there are huge exceptions to that, but for most people, like, you know, I have no problem signing into some YouTube video and watching it and YouTube and Google will tell me exactly what I should watch next. And it's usually pretty good. It has to take a choice to actually use a decentralized alternative many of the time. And, you know, hate to say it, but sometimes you aren't totally rewarded for it. Like usually the experience may be worse. It may load more slowly, but you're like, you know, you're fetching it from peers in a, you know, verifiable way. And to a lot of people, it's not really an important thing. And so I always say, you know, decentralization doesn't matter until it does and when it does it's a it's a huge thing and so i think in information uh sometimes people correlate like it doesn't matter until it does with 
maybe like less great things about what people are saying in society. But I think as we think about the growth of information and, and how things change over time, the notion of what that is, wherever you are, may be very different. Like people speaking out about freedom in different countries, uh, you know, maybe seen that way, whereas the United States, it may be a, a totally different conversation. And so the idea that we can develop these primitives now before the internet and technology become a totally runaway train, if it's not already, is, yeah, I think, a super inspiring ideal. We will get along so so well, Patrick. <laughs> I, I was saying very similar that Corey actually hates it. You say, you say everything's bullshit until it is until it isn't. And Corey's like, what does that even mean? And I was like, dude, it's just facts. Like nothing's that's just a until... that's just a broader generalization of my <laughs> Yeah, it's just like sometimes they, nothing works and then surprise it works. And we're like, oh, this really works. Now we're gonna now we're gonna start doing it all the time. That's what I tell my boss too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to add to that additional complexity of like how to use these things and the like the general direction in which it's going, and that is this kind of I'd say more application specific, uh, multi chain world, and the decisions that applications have to use in order to make something that they can give to users and people can access this stuff is like now that it's all sparsed out and siloed kind of again, how do we build bridges to them? Right. We're talking about value assets like digital scarcity and each of these pools of digital scarcity, if you will, has an associated security value to it. Like how do you bridge these things safely? How do you, how do you move from one, what I would call a community to another? And I mean, you couldn't have asked a better question. I think that that's very front on, on our mind, I think in particular is when you have these like optimized chains that may have very specific use cases or virtual machines designed for exactly what the application is, you give up a whole hell of a lot with composability, uh, like the ability to easily access, integrate, you know, a single liquidity pool, a single, you know, user base, whatever have you. Uh, it's a huge problem. And I think it's twofold. One is the actual on-chain interaction. And then the second one is the actual like wallet level interaction of how you actually get people to integrate with your custom virtual machine, assuming that, you know, you're doing one as well, but the more the merrier uh, for many in, in many cases for that. Um, so, you know, I'll give my opinion on, on what we've done and what we're going to do and, and why we think it suits well with this with this challenge. And I'll, I'll, then I'll talk a little bit more broadly about the about the design space, which is, um, you know, subnets are great, but right now they're they're super siloed. You know, if you have your own subnet, there's no like native primitive that lets you move between uh, different subnets really easily, right? Like usually people rely on a different bridge or, or something like that to move between it. And we all know how terrifying bridges are, generally speaking, and you know what that means. And if you have bridges as part of like your native blockchain story, there's like a huge risk just sitting at the core of whatever you're doing. So like you can spend all this time building this fantastic virtual machine and all this great community ecosystem. And then one day you may just have a poof, right? Like, you know, that one thing you didn't even think about. And it's gone. Ruined everything. Yeah, exactly. South Park fans in the room. Where did that noise um, come from? Yeah, yeah. Where did that come from? That was very small. <laughs> um, and so Avalanche from the start was designed great, will help people run subnets in their own virtual machines, but it's useless if there's not a really fast, integrated, and cheap way to actually move between them. And so anyone that uses Avalanche will be like, wait, I haven't heard of that. I haven't used that. And yes, you're right. It doesn't 
it's not out yet. Uh, it's very soon to be out. We released the core protocol primitives in our last major release, BAM, um, that allows different, basically virtual machine valid or subnet validators to register uh, a new type of cryptographic uh, key, uh, also used very widely in ETH2, uh, called BLS 12-381 uh, keys that allow you to perform multi, basically create multi-signatures uh, that can then be used to move data between different subnets. Now, you may say, okay, cool, then you gotta move you know, data around, whatever. Well, the way that Avalanche is designed, there's like this primary network component that everyone participates in, even if you only are, even if you're interested in like a particular subnet, you can't just validate that subnet. You also have to validate the primary network. And people have been like, well, what if I just want to run my own subnet? Like that's what Cosmos does. Like, why can't I just do that? And right now, like, you know, it's a fair argument, right? Like it doesn't get you anything extra. Like you just have this other thing that you're also running. Well, very soon it does get you something extra, which is any validators in the network, regardless of what subnets they're on, have a shared um, state basically of who's validating which subnets at which time with which weight, because all of that is stored on the P chain, one of the chains of the primary network. What that allows you to do is when you get a message from another subnet, whatever it is, it says, you know, it has some multi-signature on it, which is 96 bytes, and then some basically list of who participated. You on the receiving end of any other subnet can then verify based on what you already have what is those validators like actual public signature that you get around that data is valid. So you solve this like many to many problem with subnets because you don't actually have to like pass headers around between different subnets or like have some sort of shared block format that they can all listen to each other. You can just authenticate the signatures whenever you get it because you already have a shared understanding of who can actually pr produce these signatures at any time. And so we will provide an uh, basically, it's already unblocked on the protocol layer, the ability to pass arbitrary bytes between any subnet and then authenticate it within a millisecond or two milliseconds, depending on the size of the actual uh, subnet that it's coming from. So, you know, the real... Well, watch, just mm -hmm. chime in there too. Um, so I think the, uh, uh, the real piece of it is, can really like quick and seamless messaging, like cross-subnet messaging, compensate for the lack of native composability. And native composability is really the main goal of all these blockchains that try to have a massive chain, mm -hmm. massive VM. Like they would say that the cost and complexity of moving between different virtual machines is not worth it. And we would much rather invest in building a faster and bigger virtual machine that we're all in the, at least in the same state space. And over the next few years, that is the biggest conceptual battle, as far as I'm concerned. Is it better to have one massive state space, which may be more expensive and more complicated uh, to optimize in particular? Or is it going to be better to have thousands of tons of like little optimized blockchains that are all communicating with each other uh, seamlessly over whatever sort of protocols that they want to? Now, history would say that the more horizontal you can go without losing functionality, the better. Like, I think that's how all massive and major systems have developed in the internet age. Um, but, you know, state and the importance of having a canonical state has never been an ingredient uh, that is part of that evolution. So that may tilt the scales in a, in a different way, especially if people figure out ways to process data and state much faster than they currently do now. So, you know, it's a, challenge for the ages pick your pick your team <laughs> i'm on team edward 
sorry. Uh, I mean, that's definitely like the fork in the road, if you will, of where we're going. Uh, I would hardly argue that it's this horizontal scaling and a good message passing layer, uh, verifiable message passing layer for these types of things, because I don't want to give a shit about, I don't want to have to give a shit about what you're doing unless I opt into it. Yeah, I mean, I for, think I was going to say like for application developers, it gives a lot more people, it gives a lot more optionality for people to make an application that's appropriate for what they're doing and not be encumbered by the burden of everything else in the process. And so like we experienced that on Ethereum as it grew, uh, the use cases were narrowed and this was even echoed originally by Bitcoin. The use cases of Bitcoin were drastically narrowed as a function of its success. And the same thing happened with Ethereum, but it was mainly associated with state space and its success and the ability for people to like the, 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 the fees associated with getting things done. And if you don't want that to happen, then it has to be that other, that other future of, you have a lot of optionality in what you want to build because you're not burdened by the decisions of everyone globally who is participating in whatever this thing is. Yeah, I mean, composability and shared standards have a cost. And I think that that plays out very, very plainly in blockchain. Uh, but sometimes I just think about it as a people problem, right? Like sometimes I see five people agree. Maybe sometimes I'll even see 10 people agree. But try to get like a thousand very well-educated, very opinionated people to agree on a shared thing. Very difficult. <laughs> and it's usually people have very good reasons for why they hold their opinions. It's not like there's of a thousand people that very much know what they're talking about, that there is some clear answer that some people are just wrong about. They may just have very different principles. They may care about different things. And so when I see a world like this, I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> like, the idea that you can have like one mother chain or like one unifying like vision that ever absolutely everyone will totally get, I think is just everything I've ever seen. Anything about people just says that that's not really a possibility. And so what they can agree on though, is like maybe uh, some sort of like set of constraints or like some system in which they can play out their ideas. I think that's a very reasonable thing to, to say, like, we all are working on blockchain, but like we're working on very different aspects or parts or different dimensions of it. So like maybe we can come up with a much more high level shared language. And as we think about what we can do to enable different virtual machine developers, that's usually where our uh, train of, of thinking lies is what is the least we can do to make this possible? Because we want to avoid putting any sort of clear uh, opinion or clear forcing function on a particular aspect of the design because we really are so afraid of cutting off you know however many people in that thousand we may do because we say this is the only way you can do this uh, one quick example i'll give you is that with a subnet you don't actually even need blocks you could actually just use the networking layer and just gossip to each other like that would be a valid subnet and you could uh, reward people just for being online gossiping random stuff around to each other. I'm not sure if you know that I've been one of the people that's been shouting that from the mountaintops ever since the beginning. I know. Of I know. People don't really. People, that's like one of the things I always bring up at the end of every presentation I give. Is like you may not realize it, but I actually think more subnets as like a P2P playground. Like we want to give you the tools to really start up. Like all the complicated like networking stuff, and like how you authenticate traffic, move bytes around the network, like rate limiting among peers, like. 
get that out of the box and then get to the point where you're actually playing out your more clear desires and design with virtual machine. Yeah. I've said something in the recent, recent history in our little Slack group here. We, we have quite a few avalanche, um, <clears throat> the, I guess, aficionados, you'd call them. And uh, I said, so it's may, maybe not be the, the most technical thing, but I say, I, I feel like crypto uh, people have too much pride to build a subnet. Right. Like they don't want to. I don't know. It just feels like intrinsically I see the growth of Avalanche and why it's, you know, it's slow. It's going up but super slow when the tech is obviously really good. It just seems that people have too much pride to build a subnet like and that's that's the way I feel about it. But I, I, I after hearing you talk about like I was like a P2P playground, then, you know. That makes sense, but still, I feel like people are like, oh, "I'm just gonna, like, uh, yeah." I mean, so my like, own playground, you know. It's a very good point. Very good question, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> you know, like, Corey, Corey's like, "You're absolutely right. I'll build my own yeah, playground." I mean, the whole point of what we're trying to do is like, uh, we are very early on in the story of what we're building. You know, like. Right now, like I think most people would say that subnets are a very limited version of a chain that is like very tightly coupled to what Avalanche is. Like you can't really claim with a straight face that you have like an open community and everything like that on a subnet because it's just, you know, people think of it as like a child or like subpart, you know, subnet, subpart of what Avalanche is. Now, you know, what you'll see from us over the next year or so is uh, a massive refinement of that tooling uh, so that you really can put your application and everything you're doing front and center in a way that, um, you know, you would do uh, from scratch if you could. Now, it's not going to be for everybody. I'm not claiming it to be like, you know, you may have a different idea for consensus. You may want to innovate on different parts of the stack. And I think that I think that's fantastic. But the way we think about it uh, is, is kind of modeled after somehow, kind of not how cloud providers work, but you know, like when you run your application, no one asks like, oh, you know, you're on AWS, that means you're this kind of application, right? Like <laughs> you're just running something on the internet and it just so happens to be the most convenient way for you to do it. Very similarly, Avalanche is like this kind of containerization framework that lets you take whatever blockchain you want and run it. Now, right now, because it's so young, like Avalabs and Avalanche play a huge part in helping to support the community. But you can just do whatever you want on your own if you want to. We've already seen a number of people do it and they just you know, have their project front and center and at the very bottom it says powered by an Avalanche subnet. Um, you know, We think over the next year as we make the tooling easier to use and we have to play a lot less of a role to help people get started, it will just become one of those things where it's like, you know, I'm running my blockchain, does all this really cool VM stuff, maybe even ZK related things. And like, oh yeah, by the way, you know, it runs on this shared layer because we get, you know, simple consensus, simple networking, and like really easy messaging between other people that have made the same decision. So yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from now, but I think that, you know, what with what we have targeted, it's it's really about stepping back and then letting the community really push it forward. We just want to make sure that they have the right tools uh, to do that uh, at that time. And then with that, we got to wrap up a little bit. Is there anything that you would have liked us to ask that we didn't? Um, maybe how I could get people to help <laughs> what we're looking for. Yeah. How would you like <laughs> to get people to help Patrick? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think the, thing in my career early on, I, I, uh, I was so over indexed on ideas and the importance of ideas 
that even if you had whoever working on it, it wouldn't matter. You know, if the idea was good, it would succeed. Um, and, you know, in blockchain and over the last few years, I've been shown and shown again, like the, the real truth of the matter is you only go great places with, with great people working on great things. Like the great things come out of just people having fun and working together in, in interesting and exciting ways. And so, uh, you know, what we're trying to do now at Avalanche is continue to grow out our protocol team, looking for the best and brightest that are interested in the same kind of ideals we are of uh, trying to create this like open and exciting layer for people to build different blockchains on uh, and helping to, uh, again, also build really cool and exciting virtual machines on top of everything we're doing. We released our own Rust SDK last week or two weeks ago to help make it easier for different people to build virtual machines. And over the next few months, we'll release this cross-summit messaging application that you can use. Um, and so for us, it's really important just to engage with 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 awesome folks trying to trying to get into blockchain and trying to build cool stuff. So if you're interested, you know, reach out to me and I'd be happy to chat with you, happy to help however I can. Thanks for coming on. Great combo. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, I had a blast. Works for me.